Uh, as I mentioned, we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and running through verse 7. Um, you know, as I read through Scripture, I, I find comfort in knowing that our God has a plan. And uh, I, I can't say that when I, I watch the world and I look at the news, I'm thinking, you know, where is God in all this? And, and I'm, I'm glad that God brings us to this text this morning because it's my been my prayer this week for you all, that you also would find comfort knowing that in the midst of all the craziness and the unsettling, our God has a plan. Part of my being made in the image of God is that He has made me a planner. And so if you're a planner, ugh, right? I mean, where are my planners at? So we're, we're kind of, remember like a couple months ago when we had our calendars and they were empty? And planners didn't know what to do because we were just like unsettled. Uh, but now I've seen some of your all's posts and I've seen your calendars and uh, maybe we should, you know, go back to that time where we didn't have anything on the calendar. Um, I, I find comfort in knowing that God commissioned Joseph to be the father of, earthly father of his son Jesus and Joseph was a planner. Uh, we read last week in Matthew, Joseph considered what to do with Mary when he found out that she was pregnant. He was trying to develop a plan. Uh, my confession, though, and maybe if you're a planner, you can relate to this as well, is that sometimes I can get stuck in my plan. Um, so I can learn a lot, and we can learn a lot from Joseph about submitting to God's plan and allowing God to change our plans. Uh, I know Joseph didn't plan on going through with the marriage with Mary once he found out that she was pregnant. We can know that Joseph did not have plans to be the father of the Son of God. We can know that Joseph planned on showing Mary as much compassion as possible in breaking off the engagement. We can assume, after God changed Joseph's plans, that Joseph began planning for the arrival of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and he probably wasn't planning to make an 80-mile hike from Nazareth to Bethlehem with a bride-to-be who is ready to give birth uh, to a son. And this is the problem I wrestle with when I plan. I wrestle with submitting to God's plan and wrestle with submitting to God rearranging my plans because I know what I want to do and I know what I want to see happen. But Joseph had to learn to rearrange his plans and allow God to rearrange his plans as he became the father of Jesus. He probably didn't plan on having his son born in a manger. He probably didn't plan for the first night that shepherds would come out from the hills to come and visit his child. He probably didn't plan for wise men to come from the east, come bearing gifts. He probably didn't plan within the first couple years to become uh, a father of a refugee and become a refugee himself as King Herod created the edict, edict decree sorry, that all the children in Bethlehem should be put to death. He probably, Joseph, didn't plan when he went to Jerusalem to lose Jesus while he was there. I mean, I can imagine God's conversation with Joseph. Joseph, you had one job. <laughs> Keep an eye on my kid. And Joseph didn't plan for Jesus to wander off. The thing is, is when our plans collide with God's plans, someone's plans have to give. And this morning, our focus is the divine hand of God. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We may even want to subtitle this, When Plans Collide. 
But throughout this passage, what we're going to see is God's divine hand, His plans, the tools He uses, the people He uses, the timing He uses. And then we're also going to see the dangers that we have when we collide with God's divine hand and and the dangers that can happen because of that. The divine hand of God is frequently referred to as the sovereignty of God. The Holman Bible Dictionary defines the sovereignty of God as the biblical teaching that God possesses all power and is the rule of all things. That includes our plans. God rules and works according to His eternal purpose. He doesn't work according to ours. Even through events that seem to contradict or oppose His rule, which I think we're kind of experienced today in our world. Scripture emphasizes God's rule in three areas. Creation, human history, and redemption. Scripture testifies clearly to God's rule over His creation. The Bible affirms also that God rules human history according to His purpose, from ordinary events in the lives of individuals to the rise, affairs, and fall of nations. The Younger Bible Dictionary defines it as a term by which expresses the supreme rulership of God. God is absolute. He is under no external restraint whatsoever. He is the supreme dispenser of all events, And all forms of existence are within the scope of His dominion. Now, I frustrate Jamie sometimes because I'm a planner on steroids. I I like to plan. I like to have a sub-plan. I like to have a backup plan. And when my plans don't work, I replan. And and that's the way I work. And it it frustrates me because I will ask her questions, and she's like, I don't have a plan. And, Charlie, you can relate, right? Yeah, and so I don't understand that, but God has brought us together Because I'm made in the image of God as a planner, but God has brought us together so I can learn that plans don't always have to go the way I want them to go. My plans simply need to align to God's plans. And so we're going to be learning about the sovereignty of God today. And throughout this week, God has been planning for us to have an encounter with Him in His sovereign rule. And this is to bring us comfort. But there's also a battle in the midst of the sovereignty which we're going to see in our passage. Charles Spurgeon once said, There is no attribute of God more comforting to His children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. So let's read our passage and we'll see how this works out. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you have a plan and you've invited us to be a part of it. Thank you that your hand is over this entire world. It's over all of your creation. That there's nothing happening that you have not allowed to happen and there's nothing happening that has taken you by surprise. And so, Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would open up the scriptures to us that we might understand it. That it would not be my words, but your word that is spoken to our hearts that we would be receiving of your word and your truth, that our ears would be open to hear, 
that our eyes would see it, that our hearts would be softened to accept it and allow it to take root. Above all else, Lord, I pray it is your will and your kingdom to come and that our meditations and the words of our mouth will be pleasing to you for you are our rock and our redeemer. Thank you for what's going to happen here in the next couple minutes as we walk through your word. Be our shepherd and guide us to where we need to be, where you want us to be. Pray us all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is typically known as a Christmas story. Who reads this at Christmas with your family? It's a tradition in the Hurchin house. It's a tradition when we go to the grandparents' house. We have to read this story, which is known as Christmas. As we mentioned, Luke is taking the the approach to the Gospels as a historian. He is trying to capture everything that is going on in the life of Jesus Christ and to give us some meaning, some, some places where we can say, okay, we can know that that happened. But Luke's historical approach is a lot different than what we would be familiar with in our historical books. For example, there are times in Luke's Gospel where he is going to give us a definitive time stamp to the things that are occurring and the events that are surrounding that. Then there are times in Luke's Gospel and also in the book of Acts where we're given a vague time stamp. And this is how our passage begins this morning. It says, in those days. This is a vague time stamp. All Luke is doing here is tying the events of Jesus' birth to the events of John's birth. And we can know, because of Luke's Gospel, that there was about six months of separation from when John was born to when Jesus would be born. And Luke's recording of these events presents a problem that we need to address before we dive fully into it. His vague timestamp tells us that Caesar Augustus issued a decree for a census that all should be registered. And it was also when Cornelius was governor of Syria. And the reason we need to do, deal with this, because we know from the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we're doing through this, this series, is bringing all the Gospels together so we can get this beautiful picture that God has given us. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that Herod is the king over Judea at this time. We also know, due to historical documentation outside of the Bible, that King Herod died in 4 A.D., so in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, when it says, And Herod died, that's 4 A.D. Well, Caesar Augustus became the emperor over the Roman world in 27 B.C., and he ruled until 14 A.D. This is the same Caesar to which Paul appealed to in Acts chapter 25 when he was under arrest. And so we have this vague timestamp, which if we do a little investigating, we know this has to have happened before 4 AD, and since the wise men visited Jesus, not when he was a baby, but when he was a toddler, it gives us a little more of a timestamp of between 2 and 3 AD. The issue, though, is Quirinius. He is governor of Syria. Now, outside of the Bible, historical documents outside of the Bible lets us know that Quirinius did not become governor of Syria until 6 AD. And he only ruled until 7 A.D. So this vague timestamp about in those days that Luke gives us produces a problem that we need to deal with so we can know that we can trust the accuracy of Scripture that God has given us. Well, if we do some investigating, we can find out through historical documents that the dynamics and relationship between Herod and Caesar was not a good one. They did not have a good work relationship. 
And at the time of Herod's reign, Quirinius was a military leader who would be used by the Roman Empire to come into an area and be over all the leaders and governments to make sure that they would submit to Caesar's decrees, which would include this census. And so Quirinius was probably placed in force over Syria to make sure that Herod complied with what Caesar decreed in taking the census. In our day, we can go online and we can send it in through the mail, but this wasn't the case during the birth of Christ. Some census in the Roman world would take up to 40 years to complete. The average census took 14 years, and once it was completed, they would do it all over again. And so Quirinius is placed in Judea, in Syria, over Herod, to make sure that he follows the rules or the law that Caesar had set up. This particular census in Luke chapter 2 was one for taxation. It was not for a military census. The Jewish people were exempt from all military work within the Roman world. And since we know that this census was completed when Quirinius was the official governor of Syria, it's most likely pointing out that it began when Caesar Augustus first came into power and it, it was a longer census to be taken out. It doesn't create an inaccuracy of Scripture if we we'll do the investigation into the circumstances. If Caesar issued this decree at the beginning of his term, then it would mean that this census was fulfilled when Quirinius began his official term, since, and, and Luke gives him the credit since he implemented the census to completion. The census by the Roman Empire, though, in our passage, we call the Christmas story, is actually the driving force of the passage. Without the census, Joseph and Mary do not go to Bethlehem. Without the census, Jesus is not born in Bethlehem, hence fulfilling the prophecy of Micah in chapter 5. And so when we come to the divine hand of God, the sovereignty of God, we have to recognize the divine tools to which God uses. In these uncertain times, we can find comfort and peace that God is working he is using the events in our world to reveal His authority over all of His creation. I'm sure most of us probably feel like Joseph. When this census was given, it became an inconvenience in his life. I mean, we don't make plans to travel or do an 80-mile hike with a nine-month pregnant woman. But that's what Joseph had to do when he goes from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He takes a nine-month-old pregnant woman to Bethlehem because God was using a divine tool to implement His plan. And it caused an inconvenience. In our understanding of God's divine plan, we need to heed the words to which God spoke to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can find comfort that somehow, somehow God is using COVID-19 and this pandemic for His glory. We can find comfort that somehow God is using the riots and the protests and the looting for His glory. Somehow, God uses Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, and Independents for His glory. Somehow, God uses Facebook and social media for His glory. Somehow, God uses good, bad, accurate, and inaccurate news for His glory. 
The thing is, we don't always have to know or understand, but we can find comfort that God is up to something. And isn't that hard to see when you watch the news? But it's telling us God is up to something. He is moving. He is doing something, and He's inviting us to be a part of it. The beauty of Scripture, though, is when we watch the news and we look at our world, the Scriptures tell us that we can go before God who is sovereign and we can ask Him how and why. How is this your plan? Why are you allowing this to happen? If you don't believe me, just read through the Psalms. As they go through current situations in their own life, they're constantly asking God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you allowing them to do that? And as they cry out to God with questions and then understand that God is sovereign and He's using these as His divine tools, they become strengthened, they find peace, and they move their heart into a place of worship. What they couldn't see, they came to understand that God is already seen. And what they couldn't understand, they came to the understanding that God fully understands. And that's their peace. God knows. You might have gotten frustrated, aggravated. My favorite word is flabbergasted. You may have had many questions going on, confused. But we can understand that God is sovereign. And because He is sovereign, God is moving God's doing something. J. Oswald Sanders writes that everywhere in this beautiful world in which we live, there is evidence of God who is working to a plan vast beyond human comprehension. The circumstances surrounding our lives are not accidental, but are devised by an all-wise and loving Father who knows how best we can glorify Him and yet at the same time achieve our own highest good when this becomes our conviction, believed and accepted, then every part of life becomes significant. And life itself becomes one long voyage of discovery of God and our own true selves. Because when He guides, He does so in such a way as to lead us into a wholesome maturity and a growing likeness of Christ. Caesar Augustus was the first emperor over the Roman Empire who declared himself to be a son of a god. He did not believe in the one true God, and he had no room in his heart for the one true God. Yet here in Luke, God's divine tool was to use a pagan emperor who ruled over a pagan empire to issue a decree which caused an inconvenience upon God's people and reminded them that they were subjects to this pagan empire. Also, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and fulfill, guess what, what God spoke. What God said was going to happen. And God used all these, these parts to fulfill His plan. Everyone knew of Caesar's power and authority in the Roman Empire. And everyone was subject to it. But here in Luke, what Luke points out is the power and authority of Caesar was orchestrated by the true power and authority of God. Because God can use whatever tools He needs to accomplish His will. And it isn't just on us to understand it, but we have to be aware that God is working His divine plan in our midst today. We're not going to spend much on this next portion because we've been dealing with it the last several weeks. But in verses 4 through 5, we find the divine family. Verses 4 through 5, God orchestrates the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant through Mary and Joseph. 
They were a part of God's divine plan and family. And if we've accepted Jesus Christ, we've been invited into God's divine family by faith. And the Old Testament reveals to despite God's people's unfaithfulness and their inability to see God's sovereign hand, God remains faithful to His promises on His children. That's what God does. He will never backslide on His Word. God is faithful as a heavenly Father. That's the God we serve. That's the God we worship. That's the God whose presence we're in in this moment. We also see in verses 6-7 through the divine timing. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke's recording of Jesus' birth is very simply stated, but is not to be overlooked. Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. He had to, because that's what God spoke in the prophet, through the prophet Micah. So God is fulfilling His plan, and God orchestrated His divine tools to move His divine family to be the place where they needed to be, all in His divine timing. The interesting aspect of Mary going with Joseph is Mary didn't have to go. The Roman Empire did not do a census on females. They only did it on males. But Mary goes with Joseph, most likely to avoid the, the scandal of her pregnancy back in Nazareth. Perhaps Joseph's plan was he didn't want to leave Mary alone, knowing that the child would be here soon. But one commentator points out it was a combination of a decree by the emperor in distant Rome and the gossiping tongues of Nazareth that brought Mary to Bethlehem at just the time to fulfill the prophecy about the birthplace of Christ. God works through all kinds of people to affect His purposes. Now I found the hardest part in living God's sovereignty isn't to say I know God is all authority and He is worthy of my praise, but it's recognizing God's timing over my own. We live in a day where we can have things immediately, but we have to understand things don't happen on our time. They happen on God's time. And God is the only one who can open and close doors. But from the beginning, before time existed, before there's ever anything in existence except God, God has been planning this precise timing for our salvation. And right now, God is planning the precise time for when He's going to return. He's got it all planned out. All that is going on in our world is because of God's timing. We may not like the times that we live in. We may want Jesus to come back today. But perhaps we should heed the words of Mordecai when he spoke to Esther. If you keep silent at a time like this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther, Mordecai wanted Esther to understand the divine and sovereign timing of God. Here's the thing. We can find hope and comfort that nothing in our life happens by chance. There is no such thing as coincidence with God. He has everything mapped out. God has placed us as His representatives for His kingdom right now in 2020 so that we might bring Him glory. And everything, everything is working out according to God's timing today just as everything has worked out according to God's timing as we come into Luke chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under, under heaven. 
So we may listen to the news and shake our head. We may hear things going on and see things going on in the world, and we may be dumbfounded. We may wonder, where is God in all of this? But our understanding that God is sovereign and that He has a time reminds us that God is at work and His clock is still ticking. When I grew up, I would go spend at least one week every summer at my granny and granddad's farm. And I enjoy because I go fishing with granddad. I did to ride. Uh, they had a horse when I was younger. Uh, and I just felt cool because I got to go run through the woods and play. Um, but I had two requests when I would go spend the night or the week with granny and granddad. The first request was that I wanted a nightlight in whatever room I was going to sleep in. Um, and I, I always asked for that except for the, the one summer my granny put me in her doll room. And I could see all the beady eyes staring at me while I slept, and I thought, I don't need an eyelid anymore. Um, <laughs> the second request I had was for my granny to do something with her clocks. So my granny had three or four clocks that donged, some every 15 minutes, and all of them at least on the hour. The thing is, my granny set all of her clocks like a minute off. And so throughout the night, Dong, dong, and then when that one finished, the next one would start. And so it'd be like this, this constant donging throughout the night, and I couldn't sleep. So I, I would ask her, before we go to bed, can you like unplug them, do something with them so I don't hear them because I can't sleep through all the dinging and donging. Um, and she said that, because I asked her, why do you do that? She said she wanted to make sure they were all still working, so she had to set them all to different times. Um, I don't know why, but some reason when we were at the farm a couple weeks ago, Jamie, my wife, decided to bring home one of those clocks. Um, we have yet to start it. It's like a really old clock. It's really cool because it's like it doesn't have batteries. You wind it, and then it'll go for a while, and then you got to rewind it. Um, but I can guarantee you this. That clock will be on the same time as every other clock in our house. Um, I'm one of those people that, like, so we have a clock in our microwave and a clock on our stove, and if they're off, I have to change them. Anybody else like that? I, I, I cannot know. That, and I think it's because my granny. I think she did something to me as a child where <laughs> clocks cannot be off. They have to be the same. Matter of fact, when I was looking at that clock back there and I looked at my watch, they're, they're not the same. And so I'm going to have to change that before I leave today. But <laughs> see, our, our clock and our timing gets off, particularly when we get away from God's time and God's Word, and God's sovereignty. And so what we have to do as God's people is we have to get on to God's time. And it may not go as fast as we want it to go. Sometimes it goes faster than we want it to go. And sometimes we're left waiting, God, when are you going to go? But it's all about getting on God's timing. Because all things are working out according to God's timing. So we just have to get our clock set to His. But there's two dangers when it comes to the divine hand of God that we must deal with, which our passage brings out. The first is having a divine blindness. Now, God is sovereign. God is divine. He is over all things. But I don't want you to, to hear that that means God is forcing you to do stuff. And God is forcing people to do things. Scripture reveals that there is a battle going on because every human being who's created in the image of God also has free will. 
So we can choose to be on God's plan, or we can choose to start making up our own plan and hope God plays along with it. We all have free will. And because we have free will, and because we think we are actually the authority and control of our life, it can lead to a divine blindness to the things to which God is doing. Because we want God to play by our rules. But the recording of the birth of Christ, Luke points out that Joseph and Mary were bringing the Son of God into a life of poverty, obscurity, and even rejection. Verse 7 says there was no place for them in the inn. Now this wasn't a holiday inn. This wasn't something you booked. This is referring to a guest room or a guest house. J. Edwards says that in these homes, in this day, the homes were divided into three parts. There was a large central room, and then there was a room for stables, and there was a guest room. And the guest room and the stables were on the opposite end of the large central room. And all three rooms had their own entrance. The guest room, or the inn, to which Luke refers to here, was separated by the central room by a solid wall. The stable was separated from the central room by a half wall, which would allow the family to go and feed the animals, and they wouldn't have to go outside into the elements to do so. The stable, when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, the guest rooms in all of the houses were already occupied. And so Jesus had to be swaddled and placed in a manger. The manger was within sight and sound of the people who actually owned the house in the, who were in the center room. The Middle, Middle Eastern hospitality would have ensured Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were properly cared for. They weren't like it's flown out in the backyard. They were close to other people. But the reality, Scripture also points out in John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. The Son of God came to the world to which there was no place for Him. The world needed saving, but it was blind to God's, God's divine tools, His divine family, and His divine timing. And just try to put yourself in this passage. Can you imagine knowing that you were in Bethlehem the same night that the Son of God was born and you missed it? Not even knowing that was taking place. But we can go even further. Luke says Caesar Augustus issued the decree. He declared himself to be the son of a God, lowercase g. He was an authority when the birth of Jesus Christ took place, but he was also an authority when the birth of Christianity took place. But nowhere in history, in the Bible or outside the Bible, do we ever find Caesar Augustus seeking after Jesus. He would have been aware of Jesus and his followers in Judea. He would have been aware of Jesus' followers after Jesus' death. But nowhere does he seek after Jesus. As God was working out his divine plan, there was a divine blindness going on. And we don't want a divine blindness because it will cause us to miss the things of God. Caesar had every opportunity to know the one true God, but he was blinded to the things of God by his own selfish ambition and sinful nature. The final danger we see that we all experience when the divine authority of God comes upon us is the divine collision. The story of Christmas is a story of a God's world colliding with God's living word. It's a story of two kingdoms colli colliding. Everyone in Rome 
Roman world knew and heard of Caesar's decree and followed, but no one was prepared for God's word to manifest. And this is the story that we can live out in our own life as well. As we've all woken up this morning, as we've woken up all this week, God is preparing our hearts for a divine collision with Him. Not just here on Sunday, every single day. God is preparing to have an interaction with us as His creation. And the collision is based on the question, who or what is going to have authority over our life? The underlying question that is, are we going to make room for God's authority in our life and heart? Preacher Jonathan Edwards once preached, in that he is God, he is worthy to be sovereign over all things. Sometimes men are the owners of more than they are worthy of. But God is not only the owner of the whole world, all, as all is from and dependent on Him, but such is His perfection, the excellency and dignity of His nature, that He is worthy of sovereignty over all. No man ought to temper in the temper of his mind to be opposite to God's exercising the sovereignty of the universe, as if he were not worthy of it. For to be the absolute sovereign of the universe is not a glory or dignity too great for him. It is therefore fit that everything should be in His hands to be disposed of according to His pleasure. His will and pleasure are of infinitely greater importance than the will of creatures. In that He is God, He will be sovereign and He will act as such. He sits on the throne of His sovereignty and His kingdom rules over all. He will be exalted in His sovereign power and dominion. His counsel shall stand and He will do all His pleasure. There is no wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against the Lord. Whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing shall be put to it, nor anything taken from it. Great men and rich men and wise men cannot hinder God from doing His pleasure. God's divine hand and sovereignty should bring us comfort, but at the same time it should make us uneasy because it's calling us to submit and surrender to His authority. It's a call to lay down our ambitions and our dreams and our hopes, our fears, our desires, and just submit them to God. It makes us uneasy because we actually buy the lie that we're in control. But the truth is we are being controlled by the divine hand of God. And so our prayers every single day should, Lord, give me a willing spirit to submit to Your authority. And so is there something in our life which we're not submitting to God? Do we have a relationship we're not submitting to God? Our finances, are we submitting that to God? Our time, our family, our careers, are we submitting them to God and His authority over them? This is the divine collision which God has been preparing us for. But maybe here this morning in the divine collision that God has been preparing you for right now is the day of your salvation. See, God knows every aspect of your life. He has every detail of your life in His book. He knows what you're going to do when it's according to His will and what you're going to do outside of His will. And He loves us despite ourselves at times. This is why the gospel is good news. The gospel is the sovereign God created you for a relationship with Him. The problem is we have sin in our life. We do things that God doesn't want us to do. We live outside of His will and outside of His authority. And that sin is going to separate you from God for eternity unless it's dealt with. But it can't be dealt with by you. You can't fix your sin problem. You can't do enough good things. You can't go to church enough. If you could, then, man, we wouldn't need Jesus. 
But Jesus came to live a perfect life. He died on the cross. They placed him in a tomb. He rose three days later. And the Bible says, when I believe God loves me that much, when I believe God planned my salvation with such detail, and I confess with my mouth, I will be saved. I don't have to know every detail of God's plan. I just have to know God is for me, not against me. And you may be here this morning, and you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because right now you're already living outside of God's plan if you haven't. Maybe you're here this morning and you're realizing, you know what, I have not submitted this to God. I've not placed this under God's authority. And I want to do that today. Bridget and Nick are going to come and lead us in a time of invitation. The song is about inviting the Holy Spirit in and to welcome the Spirit in. And part about welcoming the Spirit in is to being where God wants us to be, to not quench the Spirit. Maybe you need to come and kneel before the Father and just repent and submit something to Him. A relationship, your finances, your future goals. Maybe you're here today and you need to submit to God and accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. And if that's you, I'm going to just invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. And we'll celebrate with the angels. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Lord, thank you that you have a plan, even if we don't always understand it. We don't always see how it's playing out. Lord, you tell us to respect those individuals which you have placed in authority. And so we will. But we know, Lord, that you are the utmost authority over all things. You set the rules you set the laws. And so, Lord, help us as your people to submit to your will and your law. I pray this morning for those who are here who do not know you as your Lord and Savior. Father, your spirit would just grab a hold of their heart and, and place them in such a conviction that they can't stay where they are, but they have to come down and confess with their mouth that you are Lord. For my brothers and sisters in Christ who know there's a part of their life that needs to just submit to you and to trust you and find comfort Lord, give them the courage and strength to do that. Your, your word says you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So thank you, Lord, for everything you've done. Thank you for the tools you're using. Thank you for the timing you're setting up. Lord, let us be on your plan. Praise on the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.